guys can have a seat. Uh, what an amazing, uh, amazing thing we have, our, our worship team leading us so amazingly in, in worship. And I just realized, John and I just realized something, that those of you that have, that have been coming to Catalyst since June have never seen him lead worship before. I, I, it's it's kind of crazy uh, because he's been off. Yeah, you thought you were the preacher. I know. And so, uh, but th- those of you guys who don't know, John was our very first worship minister, started 11 years ago, and uh, when we were at the high school. Actually, in the, uh, in, in the house was where we started, so it's pretty amazing. So uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, how's everybody doing this morning? You guys excited to be here? I'm excited to be here. I've got some, got some uh, really uh, great news for you guys. Next week... Um, <laughs> We give the judges in the back give that an eight point five, uh, but got got some great uh, got some great news uh, next week. Uh, one of my best friends in ministry, Rick Burdett, he's a pastor at Gardenside Christian Church. We do a pulpit swap every year. I go and preach there, and he comes and preaches here. He will be here next week. He is a phenomenal preacher, much better than me. And so you guys will have a great sermon at least at least one per year. You got a great one. Uh, he will be here next week as, uh, as I'm over at Gardenside, so uh, uh, please make sure that you welcome him. One thing that Rick told me, and it's, it's very, very, very true, anybody who preaches at this church will tell you um, that whenever you're preaching, it literally is a conversation between you and the people. And there are churches I've preached at that it feels like you have to break through a wall, that people just aren't listening, that there's just resistance and what Rick has told me when he's preached here, he said, this is the, the, the church here literally pulls the sermon out of you. Uh, you guys are the, one of the easiest churches to preach to, is what he says. And that's a, that's a credit to you guys. You guys draw the sermon out of whoever's preaching. And uh, it's just, it just says a lot about your spiritual state and the, and the state of your heart before God. So without further ado, here we go. We're in a series called The Tension is Good. And we're looking at the, the extremes and where the truth is. Last week we talked about um, uh, the, the tension between predestination and free will. If you guys have not, if you guys missed last Sunday, I invite you to listen to our podcast. We podcast all our sermons. Go to our website and subscribe to our podcast. You can listen to it. Um, today, we are talking about the tension between God as king and God as friend. Is God our king or is he our friend? Um, this week, this may be one of the most common areas of confusion in our lives, and how you answer this question really determines your faith. It really does. Um, in the, it, most people tend towards one way or the other, either towards God as king or God as friend. In the, in the 1800s and early to mid-1900s, churches tended towards God as king. That's, it was, um, uh, this is where you got the whole caricature of the, the Bible thumper shouting, you know, you're going to hell, preacher, you know, this kind of thing. That, that's where you got that caricature. Uh, churches tended to emphasize God as king, uh, we got as dictator, you know, the sinners in the hands of an angry God uh, kind of stuff. It was over to this extreme. And then in the 1980s and the 1990s, churches um, led by Willow Creek Community Church uh, kind of rebelled against that and swung the pendulum all the way over here to God as friends starting the seeker-sensitive movement. They, they removed crosses they, from, from the sanctuary. They, they uh, didn't talk about hell. They didn't talk about repentance. They didn't talk about anything like that. Instead, they emphasized the relationship with God that, uh, that, that you can have. 
And uh, both were out of balance. So which is it? Is God a king or is he a friend? Well, the truth is in the tension between them. So the two extremes, with God as a friend, we can make a case for that because in John 15, 13 through 15, these are the words of Jesus himself. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends, words of Jesus, if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything I have learned from my father I have made known to you. So we have Jesus calling us friends, those who follow him, all right? Jesus specifically refers to his disciples as friends. This was groundbreaking stuff. This had never been said before. This was radical stuff. I'm sure the disciples' jaws dropped when he, they heard Jesus refer to them as friends. But on the other hand, in Revelation 21, 13, 11 through 15, we see a very different image of God. Over here is God as king. Listen to this. The apostle John writes this, and I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence. Think about that. Think if you are so mighty a king that earth and heaven flee from you. That's a pretty amazing, amazing image. There was no place for them. As I, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Not much friendship imagery there. That is definitely God as king and judge. So what is the truth? Where is the truth? Is he a friend? Is he a king? Well, we have to remember this, that Christianity is, at its heart, relational. Everybody say relational. Relational. This is what separates Christianity from other belief systems, other religions. If you look at Islam, Islam says that Allah cannot be known. He, his will cannot be known. It is blasphemous for Allah to be known by humans. His will is so far above humans, it's blasphemous to claim that you could know who God is. In Hinduism, there are tens of millions of gods. In the, in the country of Nepal alone, I've been there twice, there are 33 million different gods worshipped by the 30 million people that live there. Three million more gods than people. You can't know them all. All right? Uh, in Buddhism, there is no god. It's atheistic. No god to know. Only in Christianity does the deity make himself known to his people, not just as king as God, but as friend. The question is, how do we relate? If Christianity is relational, how do we relate? Do we relate to God as a friend, or do we relate to him as a king? Well, this is a, this is a good question. I go all the way up to the one extreme. God is friend. This is what happens. We treat God as an enabler, an equal, whose, uh, whose ways and whose commands are simply opinions and good advice to be judged whether to follow. Uh, you know, he may have some say in our lives, but, but uh, you know, only to the extent that we allow it. That's what happens when we relate to God as a friend. He's a guy who affirms us. He, he really has no principles. He just kind of loves everybody. That's if we're all the way on this extreme over here. But if we relate to God as a king all the way over here, then that leads to what's known as legalism. The year I started in youth ministry, 1999, the biggest book in, Christian, in Christianity, it seemed like, 
was, uh, among teens and young adults, was a book by Joshua Harrison called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Did anybody read that book? Anybody see that? Okay. A few recovering legalists. Okay. It made huge waves in the Christian community. I mean, it, it, it was huge. Uh, it, its premise was that dating was training our young people for divorce. You date, you break up, you date, you break up. It's just training people for divorce. It was a decent premise. It also, um, that dating was also a situation that was tailor-made for sexual temptation. You go out, you're alone. So he said, I kiss dating goodbye to emphasize courting, that you should get the families together, that you should, uh, kind of like an arranged marriage kind of thing, get the families involved and, and not being alone. This book was huge. I mean, it was huge. Well, two weeks ago, Joshua Harris... Uh, the author who'd become a mega church pastor announced that he and his wife were divorcing. And not only that, but he had walked away from the Christian faith. You've probably seen the news if you've been on social media at all. And I wrote this on my Facebook page as a response to that. You guys can follow along with me here. I said, Joshua Harris, the famous author of the 90s Christian handbook for dating, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, has announced that not only his wife are divorcing, but he is no longer a Christian. I wish him grace and healing as he goes through the pain of divorce. But I write this, I don't find it hard to believe he has walked away from faith. We saw a glimpse of his understanding of Christianity in his blockbuster book. It was very rigid, very rules-oriented, basically very legalistic. Atheism is the end path for the legalism, but not because of belief. It's mostly because of exhaustion, spiritual exhaustion, keeping all the T's crossed and the I's dotted and the, the rules followed and the judgments bestowed tends to exhaust a person, doesn't it? Can I get an Amen. I mean, absolutely, it's unsustainable. That's why Jesus taught us the concept of grace. The legalist is never at peace with God, with himself. There is always another rule to follow, task to accomplish, or behavior to be avoided by the legalist. The person who is grace-oriented understands the Christian faith is not performance-based. It is based on love, love for God and his people and the people's love in return. Forgiveness and grace brings peace to the Christian. Legalism brings nothing but frustration and burnout and bitterness. I wrote this. I pray that Joshua Harris finds his faith again. No, wait, I don't pray that. I pray that he finds grace I pray that he finds the grace and peace of God that brings him back to the real Christian faith. He must be devastated right now. His marriage and his faith gone at the same time. And if you are on the legalistic path, I pray that you too will understand the grace and peace of God. It's amazing. Legalism, rule following, God is king mentality claimed another victim. How sad. The two most important relationships with God and spouse in one instant gone. Terrible for the man. So on this one hand, we see... Uh, relating to God as a friend, becoming an enabler for our lifestyles. And uh, over here, he becomes uh, th this dictator that we follow. But relating to God as friend leads to what's called cheap grace. German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his masterpiece on Christian living, uh, The Cost of Discipleship, about cheap grace and cost of grace. He writes this. I hope you guys like this. Because relating to God as friend only leads to this. Cheap grace means the grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sins, the consolation of religion are thrown away by cut prices. Grace is represented as a church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessing with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. 
The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance. Since it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using it and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? Cheap grace, he writes, is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. With baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, with grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living in incarnate. And like I said before, people who embrace this are people that view God as an enabler. They look to God as someone who will excuse their every indiscretion, their every rebellion, who will just approve their every lifestyle choice, even if it's against his will, and who never has anything but support. However, just as enabling a drug addict leads to more addiction, looking to God as an enabler just enables more rebellion. That we would so minimize and trivialize God into an impotent guy in the sky giving advice that was so we could choose to heed or ignore, all the while enabling us to do the very things that send us to hell for all eternity. So we have one extreme leading to spiritual exhaustion, another extreme leading to rebellion and destruction. Where's the truth? Well, before we move to the truth, we have to admit that most everybody, if not everyone in here, tends toward one extreme or the other. Where are you? Let's take a moment of self-reflection. Do you tend towards God as king? Or do you, is legalism kind of your struggle? Right and wrong and holding everybody accountable and, 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 and never stacking up, never feeling like you're good enough, the legalism, the exhaustion that comes with legalism? Or do you tend towards this extreme, God is friend, where you view him as an enabler that you can sin and God will just forgive you because you love to sin and he loves to forgive, so it's a great, great relationship. Where are you on this continuum? Because we have to know that. People on the friend extreme have no respect for God. People on the king extreme have no relationship with God. Let me say that again. People who are on the friend extreme have no respect for God. And the people on the king extreme have no relationship with God. The truth is in the tension. We respect God as king and we relate to him as friend. There's some things that I want to get straight here. These are some, some conclusions I've drawn, trying to find where the tension is, where the truth is. This is the first thing, is that God's ways are absolute. There is no compromise. Psalm 119.4 says this, you have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Fully obeyed. Now, this is a tough message for America, because we don't like to be told what to do. Uh, while bringing, uh, remember that, that Jesus himself, while bringing the concept of grace, said that never once were God's ways negotiable. He said that I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Not one letter of the law will disappear while I'm here. That's what he said. God's ways are not negotiable. They're not trite. And God is not an enabler. I was talking with a non-Christian friend of mine who was really seriously thinking about becoming a Christian. He was very honest and very open. He was asking me questions. And uh, he's a single guy in his 20s with all the temptation that comes with that, uh, that age and that lifestyle. And uh, uh, he, he asked me this. He said, the Bible says that God knows us. Every hair on our head, top to bottom. Is that right? I said, yeah, that's right. And he said, well, if God knows me this well, doesn't he understand? Doesn't he understand my struggles? Doesn't he understand why I would commit these sins? Why, why would he hold me accountable for something that he knows that I struggle with? That's a good question, isn't it? 
I mean, I mean, if God knows our struggles, why would he, why would he uh, you know, say that this is wrong? He understands us, right? And my answer was this. I said, you're right, he does understand. He understands our hearts. He understands our motives, our temptations, our problems. He understands us perfectly. I said, but that doesn't mean that he sweeps sin under the rug. As a matter of fact, he understands you so perfectly that that's why he sent Jesus to the cross. He knows there's no way that you and I could ever live as he wants us to live. We are human, we are fallible, every one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is why he sent Jesus to the cross, because he does understand us, and he does not take sin lightly. He will not sit there and watch us sin ourselves into hell. He did something about it. He sent Jesus to the cross, not to enable us, but to save us. And I said, if God thinks it's a big enough deal to send his own son to die for us, then we have to realize those things are a big deal to us too. And we can't just justify or rationalize or sweep them under the rug every, under the guise of, well, God will understand. Now, not one person who uses God will understand is a person who has any respect for God at all. He's laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed, but why do we obey them? This is why we have to, this is what we have to understand. This is something in my young Christian life was never explained to me. Why do we follow? Why do we do the things God wants us to do? We understand we're supposed to do, but why? Well, this is why. First of all, because he said so, it should be enough. But the second thing is that, and it's such a beautiful thing, because we value the relationship with him. The second thing is this, the grace of God opens the relationship. Matthew 27, 50 to 51, when Jesus died on the cross, when he actually, uh, when, when he died, when Jesus cried out with loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, in the Jewish temple, there was a curtain separating the holies of holies from the rest of the folks. The, the ordinary folks like you and me couldn't go in and, and, and face, face God and talk to God. A priest had to do that for us. Well, when Jesus died, the temple curtain was torn. Jesus opened up the Holy of Holies for us, for all of us, not just a priest, but all of us to be in fellowship with God. Okay? So we have to understand that. But what does that have to do with why we follow? Well, here it is. Several years ago, psychopathic dictator Kim Jong-un from North Korea, also known as Rocket Man and whatever his nicknames are, arbitrarily forced every man in North Korea to get the same haircut as him. Let's see, here's a picture. You had to get that haircut, all right? You had to. It was a show of loyalty for him. That's what you had to look. You, you, if you didn't have that, you got sent off to the, to the labor camps, to the re-education camps. Uh, that, that's, that's the way that he forced all the men in North Korea to get that haircut, why? I don't know. Because he's psychotic, and he demanded conformity. So all of the guys, apparently, went and got that haircut because they didn't want to be sent to the labor camps and sent to prison and, 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 and be killed, because that's what happens in North Korea. Okay, well, there was another guy who once got a haircut. Here's his before picture. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Well, the reason I can't bring that back is because he got his hair cut, but for a completely different reason. He met a striking young woman. He was in love. 
And she said, you need to cut your hair. <laughs> and incidentally enough, she also got him to stop wearing turtlenecks and dumb sweaters. <laughs> Same result, right? We both got haircuts. Both the guys in North Korea got haircuts and I got a haircut, but for vastly different reasons. One got haircuts because they feared the punishment of a dictator. The other cut his hair because he valued the person he was in relationship with. It was out of love. And he's, by college, he looked like this, with this striking young woman. First group cut the hair because they feared punishment if they didn't. The second cut his hair because he loved the girl. Don't miss that because that's the heart of Christianity. Which one of those decisions was real? The second one, obviously, because it was done of own free will, because of relationship, because you valued the relationship of the person that asked you to do that. See, love motivates us to do things we wouldn't do otherwise. Not out of obligation, not out of fear, but out of relationship because you love the person. Why do we do what God says? Why do we follow his commands that are to be, he's laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed? Is it because of fear? Or, well, there needs to be healthy fear. Obviously, he's God and we're not, but that's not the main reason we follow. Because Kim Jong-un can be followed, not out of relationship. We follow because we love the one who tells us to do it. And that is the heart of of what God wants us to do. That's the reason the Christian follows Psalm 119.4. It's because the one who commands us to do it loves us and we love him. Yes, hell is real, sin is real. We don't minimize that at all. The Bible says we should fear God, absolutely. And we know what can happen if we don't. However, that, the, that registers to the Christian less and less as we mature. We follow God less and less out of fear of hell as we mature and more out of love and devotion to him. And the third thing, that the truth and the tension is that respect for God leads to relationship with God. Bonhoeffer continues in his thing on cheap grace and costly grace. He says this, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. Is following with me here. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the very eye that causes him to sin. Because the call of Jesus Christ, which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is a gospel which must be sought again and again, a gift which must be asked for, a door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, Bonhoeffer writes. It is grace because it gives man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and it is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because what it costs God the life of his son, and because we were, and you were bought at a price, and what has cost God much cannot be light for us, he writes. Above all, it is grace because God does not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. There must be respect for God 
before there can be relationship with God. And there must be relationship with God if there's to be respect for him. Without respect, God is just an enabler. That's all he is. It's the way a lot of people want it to be. But without relationship, God is a tyrant. And strangely enough, that's the way a lot of people want to, want to be as well. See, the people who want just a rubber stamp on their lifestyle, they're not really, they have no respect for God at all. That's the way God made me. I'm going to be myself, is what these people say. Bad idea. People who don't want to put in the time and effort to establish a relationship with God prefer him to be a, rule, a, a, a checklist guy because they don't really like God all that much. They don't want to spend much time with him. They prefer him just to give out a bunch of rules. But people who truly embrace a Christian faith, they have both respect for God and relationship with God. Okay, the Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. You mean we're supposed to fear God? Absolutely, yes we are. The Bible says that. See, people who understand accountability live very differently than people who don't understand accountability. Think about it. If your expense account at work is being audited every week, you're going to spend money very differently than if it's never checked. People who are on camera talk and act very differently than people that aren't because of accountability. People who know they're, on, uh, who, who know they're going to be held accountable lives very, live very differently, and it stops us from doing a lot of stupid stuff, doesn't it? I laid out a challenge last year that no one has been able to answer. I simply asked this of Christian and non-Christian, mostly non-Christian. I said, can you provide me one single command of God that if followed would ruin you? I have yet to have anyone answer me. Let's just take the Ten Commandments, shall we? No gods before me, no idols. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Let's see. How many of us have completely destroyed our lives putting something of more importance in front of God? A drug, a job, a relationship, and you've, it has come back to bite you. All right? Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. How many of you all have secured an amazing business deal or gotten that, that awesome person to marry you because you threw a few GDs out there and you started using the Lord's name in vain? Any, has that benefited anyone? Um, how about, uh, uh, remember the Sabbath day, commandment number four. What is the number one issue people are dealing with? Isn't it stress? Everybody's stressed out beyond imagine. If we actually took a Sabbath day, imagine how great our lives would be. And if you don't believe me, Chick-fil-A is better than McDonald's, and it outproduces it, case closed. <laughs> okay? They, they, sell, they, they make more money in six days than McDonald's does in seven. If everybody would follow that, you'd probably be doing real well. Uh, how about commandment number five, honor your father and your mother. How many of you all have, have matured enough to realize that your most, most of your mistakes and most of your problems you created for yourself is not doing what your parents told you to do? Let's get into the last five. How many of you all will have phenomenal lives if you murder someone? How many happy homes have been based on adultery? How many of you all have just great friends and everything you're trusted because you're a thief? How many of you all have no friends because you're a liar? And what has coveting ever gotten you? Can you tell me one command of God that, will, that if followed will ruin you? I can't find one. On the contrary, someone who lives according to God's commands lives a great life, a blessed life. So much wisdom found in following the commands of God, but it can't just be that. There's so much joy in a relationship with God. 
There have been times in my life when I've been completely hung out to dry by everyone, it seems like, except God. I can look back at the most difficult times of my life, times where life falling apart, experience horrific tragedies. And I look back on that and realize that God was there the whole time. Unchanging, steady, consistent. I found him to be one who's unchanging, permanent, whose opinion of me does not change according to what I've done or how I'm feeling that day or what has happened to me. He's one who loves unconditionally through it all. The most faithful friend a person could ever have. Most, if not all of us, tend towards one extreme or the other, and both extremes are wrong. Both are not true Christianity. If you're looking for a bunch of rules to follow over here, you're wrong. That's not what the faith is. If you're looking for someone to rubber stamp your lifestyle and simply want to get out of hell free card, you're wrong too. It doesn't work that way. You're missing it. Now, we respect God as king, and we relate to him as a friend. Truth is in the tension between the two. Without respect for God, there's no relationship with God. And without relationship with God, there's no respect for God. I'm going to invite the band to come on back up. And I want for you guys to take a time of self-reflection because how you answer this question, what you do with this message today, determines in a large part your relationship with God. I want you to ask yourself, are you over here, are you a, a, a legalist maybe, a tend towards legalism? Or are you over here tends toward, tending toward enabling, like want, wanting God to enable you? Are there gross sins in your life that you have basically said, no, God, you just forgive me. I'm just going to keep doing this, but God will forgive me. Is that you today? Or are you like Joshua Harris on verge of burning out because you're trying to follow every rule and trying to impose all that on yourself and you've got this bitterness and this exhaustion creeping up in you? Both of you, whoever's on this extreme, whoever's on this extreme, you won't be here in the church much longer. You can't. I want to ask you guys, where are you? I want you to take some moments of self-reflection. Where are you? What are your tendencies? Because both will destroy us. The truth is in the tension. We relate to God. And we respect God as king, and we relate to him as a friend. We have to do both.